Let's pray. Father, you are a God who uh, does have all wisdom, and you've told us in your word very clearly when we lack wisdom, we need, we need to ask you. Uh, sometimes we're not wise enough to realize we lack wisdom, but we do. And today, uh, it's not any wise thing that I might say that's going to make the difference. It's you connecting your truth with people's hearts, so I ask that you would do that. Give each one of us here wisdom, wisdom to know and understand and live your word and follow your word and make it a part of our lives. Not just something that we hear and not just something we can check off to say, well, we've done that today. But that that your word will connect with us in such a way that we will have your wisdom, not just for our head, but for our life and our living. So guide through the message and the time together, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 7 again. If you want to turn there, uh, we began looking at Second Chronicles 7 last week. And um, the, um, this, is, this is a book, again, remember, written, it's really written to those who are returning from exile. We looked at that last week. At the end of Second Chronicles, you'll see that. It talks about uh, Cyrus issuing that decree that they could return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the walls in Jerusalem. And so this is the audience, really, that is getting this. And as they were, as uh, those who were coming back um, to rebuild Israel, they would, they would see particularly these, the rebuild Israel, rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, they would see these, in particular, these, uh, f- these first few chapters of Second Chronicles. And again, remember, it was one book. It was one writing to those, <clears throat> excuse me, to those who were returning. So they wouldn't have had this interruption of, oh, well, now we're in a second Chronicles. Uh, but when they got to this part, this section, uh, they would really begin, they, they would be seeing this as a high point for Israel. They had many years of prosperity under David, which is what first Chronicles finishes with. And those, uh, those years under David and the prosperity. Now it was under Solomon, David's son Solomon who they were seeing, and they were seeing the wisdom of Solomon as they, as they talked about in that video. I have a hard time in that video when I'm doing those drawings for that, you know, to, to, um, you know, but uh, they had, that, so they were living under the wisdom of Solomon and seeing, you know, the wisdom uh, uh, of Solomon and the rule of Solomon. The temple was built. That's what we were looking at last week. The temple was built and finished in that big dedication ceremony and, and worship uh, that was going on. That's where we were focusing on last year, the beginning of chapter 7 here, and it talks about this crazy amount of sacrifices. All the people brought sacrifices, and then on top of that, all of the sacrifices that Solomon brought in, uh, and then Solomon's prayer. And as Solomon was praying, and really the indication is his prayer came to an end when uh, the presence and the glory of God filled the temple, when it came down, when it came uh, in like a bolt of lightning, literally, and uh, and burn up the sacrifices, and then it says, you know, that God's glory filled the temple. Now, we read this as if it's an event that is happening. They're reading it as they're looking back on their history. You see, 
They're looking back on their history. But what they were doing, they would be reading this knowing that they just came out of 70 years of captivity. You know, it, that were 70 years of exile. It wasn't just captivity, it was exile. Where they were removed. And uh, really, now they were returning, but they were returning as emissaries of King Cyrus, really. You know, King Cyrus of Persia was one who sent them back. And so they were coming back, really, as his emissaries, you know, coming off of 70 years of captivity and exile because the nation as a whole had turned away from God. The nation as a whole had chose had had chosen uh, to do what was evil in the sight of God. And you'll see that as you go on from these chapters <clears throat> through the rest of Second Chronicles, you'll see over and over again that they chose to do evil in the sight of God. They chose to embrace the cultures and the values of the nations uh, you know, who surrounded them, the nations who worshipped idols, the nations who worshipped false gods, and they chose to embrace those and to stand with those instead of standing with God. And what they would find here in this section of Second Chronicles as they were, as they would be reading through is really the information that they would need to help them to be a nation that was blessed by God once again. They would help the, find what would help them to be a nation that would choose once again to be with God, a nation that would choose to stand with God. And I think the information here in this chapter is critical for any nation who would seek to be blessed by God, including the United States. That if the United States seeks to be blessed by God, you can't ignore this. You know, the, the, the temple dedication, the ceremony, ceremony was over and Solomon sent the people home. Drop down to verse 12. Verse 11 talks about he sent the people home. Verse 12, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If I close the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. Now, we're going to stop there because we're really not even going to get through all of this today. But that's just, uh, you know, look, right there, you know, verse 12, he's telling them, you know, that he had given them the temple as his place of sacrifice. God was once again dwelling among, among his people. My goodness, this is all the way back to the garden, back in the garden where God, you know, that God was there in the garden, dwelled with his people. And then sin came in and, and, and pushed that out and, and blew that apart until they, you know, finally then during the Exodus and they have the tabernacle. And what happens? God dwells once again among his people. Even during the Exodus, you have God there, that temple of, that temple that uh, pillar of fire by day and uh, fire by night and, and cloud by day, uh, signifying God's presence there again with his people. This is what they wanted. This is what they were looking for, that high point there. And now once again, the temple is completed. God's glory comes, it says, and fills the temple. And so God is once again dwelling among his people. They now had a place where they could come before God. They would come there because they recognized their need for God. You see, that's what would be drawing 
them to the temple, their recognition of their need for God, their recognition of needing to be reconciled to God. And then during this high point, during this pinnacle moment in the history of Israel, the time, you know, when everything seems to be going well and potentially even getting better, then look at what God says, verse 13. If I close the sky so there is no rain, or if I command a grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people. Wait, wait, what? What? I thought this was the high point. I thought this was a good thing. The temple was just completed. What, 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 why, you know, God, why would you do this, God? Why would he allow this to happen? Well, he continues. Let's look at 14. And my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their evil ways, and then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. The presence of God was there in the garden with Adam and Eve. And what happened? Sin came. The separation came. The presence of God comes once again to people as they're going through the exodus. And as the people are going through the exodus and they're going through these cycles and they're going through these cycles. And then there's a separation. And then here they set up the temple and they get, you know, and God comes once again and dwells among them. What happens after this? What happens after this is what he's talking about right here, that God will forgive their sin. They then again turn from God. They, right after Solomon, bam! I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, what was happening? You know, we think of Solomon as the high point there. Solomon really, uh, how, how much of a high point was it when as soon as Solomon was gone, kapui, you know, everything flies apart. It's, it's, you know, the stuff hits the fan and it's gone everywhere, you know. And so you had this picture here. You have this picture that they would be looking back on. And while the temple was being completed, really, while the temple was being inhabited by God there, what was happening is they were already beginning to go astray. Only it wasn't as obvious until after Solomon died and the whole thing flew apart. The lug nuts were loose. And they kept driving that bus. And then Solomon died and the wheels flew off. Sin came in. These people were returning from exile. They were reading about this and they would see here that sin once again was that problem. That the people chose to turn from that high place they were in. They chose to turn away from God. They chose their own way. They chose their own wisdom. They chose to ignore God. They chose to remove God from their society. Sound familiar? Sound like any country you know? Sounds like every country I know. You know, this is what the people who wanted to return to a position of enjoying God's grace and enjoying God's mercy would need to know. So he tells them, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Many of us want to see God work in our country. 
You know, we want to see God do great things in our country. Now, we are not Israel. You know, we are, we are not Israel, but those of us who have a relationship with God through Christ Jesus need to heed these words. We like this verse. We have hope in this verse. But notice, this verse is not to people in general. This verse is to God's people specifically. This is not to our country as a whole. This is to God's people who live in our country. He says, if my people who are called by my name. You see, this is a call for God's people to examine themselves. This is a call for God's people to come before God for forgiveness. This is not... We need to understand this. This is not calling for us to try to get those who do not know Christ to live or to act better. This is, that is not the call here. The call here is not follow what the Scripture says. The call here is not to elect a president who you think is going to put in godly laws. Now, Understand, I think you should vote for a president who you think is going to put in godly laws. But that's not the call here. The call here is for God's people to step up. The call here is for God's people to live like God's people. That's the call here. It is a call for God's people to stand with him. To stand with him. Not to necessarily stand, not, not necessarily, let's take necessarily out of there. It's not a call to stand with any political party. It's not a call to stand with any politician. This is a call for God's people to stand with God. This is what he's calling us to here. Notice the conditional, this is a conditional promise. Starts back in verse 13. He says, if... And then it says, then, in verse 14. You see, if... It, this is not God making an unconditional promise uh, you know, to, to bless his people. God made unconditional promises in Scripture. He made unconditional promise to David. He told David, he said, you will always have, you will always have a, an ancestor on the throne. Now, of course, David thought it was going to be Solomon and then his, you know, his grandson and his great-grandson and on and on and on and on and on. We, looking back and having the fuller picture in the New Testament, know that he's talk, he was talking about Christ and Christ always being on that throne. And we could see that. That was an unconditional promise of God. This is going to happen, God says. You know, this is going to happen. But here, here, you know, it, it's not that. This is, this is an if-then statement. If you want the ending, if you want the blessing, if you want God to heal your land, then you need that first part. If you want God to bless your land, then you, as God's people, need to humble yourselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from your wicked ways. God very specifically mentions those four areas to pay attention to. Four choices we need to make if we are going to be with him. And the first is to humble yourself. He says to humble yourselves. I saw an article this week, and uh, just the the, um, the 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 title of the article not, not only got my attention, it it kind of gave me a little bit of a 
a little bit of a kick in the gut as I was reading it. It was about a pastor, another, yet another pastor, who was having to step back from the ministry of leading his church. He's a pastor of a church in Texas of about 11,000 people. Just a little place in Texas. I forget how many campuses they said they had, but ministers to 11,000 folks on a Sunday. And he's having to step back because of sin in his life, and I was thinking, not again, Lord. You know, not again. Not another one. But this sin was not involving unfaithfulness to his wife in any way. Not in any way. I was, uh, as I was reading the article, is he wasn't being removed. Instead, he was stepping back on his own because of sin he found himself in the midst of. He consulted with his elders and he consulted with the leadership there and they came to an agreement. They set up a restoration process to help him deal with his sin. And the sin that derailed his ministry was the sin of pride. His observation, not mine. This is why he was stepping back. Because he said he found himself guilty of that sin of pride. That's what derailed his ministry. I don't know this pastor. I'm not familiar with his ministry at all. I simply read the article about the situation. Now, I read the article on Tuesday when I was studying for the sermon, when I was beginning to study for the sermon. I, you know, I read this article. You know, God can bless our nation, and he most often blesses nations through people you know and and we lose track of that sometimes in first and second chronicles god blesses them and then he begins to bless them through david and then he blesses them through solomon and then there's other there's some other godly kings that follow unfortunately there's also some ungodly kings but there's kings who live live for god and and you know look to lead his people um you know, for him. And God can bless our nation through his people who live for him. That's our challenge. That's an ongoing challenge. If my people, those who are called by my name, if they will do these things. I think an excellent example for humility is in, in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Stick a marker in, in Second Chronicles there and flip to Isaiah chapter 6. Um, I, I think it's an excellent passage for some insight into humility, into humbling yourselves. That we don't we don't get this real often. I, I think we get messed up when we think about humility and humbling. Uh, this was written a couple of hundred years before Chronicles, and I just was kind of wondering. Boy, I wonder, you know, if they had this, if they had Isaiah's writing there with them too. You know, we're used to carrying a Bible. It wasn't they didn't have a Bible to carry around, but. I just couldn't help but wonder. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. And the first part of it is familiar to you, but probably not quite as far as we're going to read. Um, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and his robe filled the temple. Seraphim was standing above him. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed, and your sins are atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. And he replied, Go. Say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Dull the minds of these people, deafen the ears, and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their minds, and turn back and be healed. And I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until the cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving a great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, and it will be burned again. Then like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. Now Isaiah is a prophet of God. Something to be proud of. You know, a prophet of God called by, selected and chosen by God, entrusted with God's message. Something, you know, you could, someone could take pride in, yet he says, notice how he describes himself. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am unworthy. He sees himself as unworthy to speak for God. His, his response stands in stark contrast to Moses. Moses was called by God. Moses tried to get out of it by what? Talking about his shortcomings. I, I can't talk well. I can't talk well. You know, I'm, I'm a nobody. They're not going to listen to me. And Moses is making excuses you know, about his own weaknesses. Isaiah here recognizes his weaknesses, but notice he recognizes the holiness of God. And he saw himself in light of that holiness. He knew he was unworthy to serve such a holy God, not because of his own shortcomings. It wasn't because of his own low state, but because of God's high place. His focus was on God, not on his self, not on his own lack of anything, but his focus was on God. Isaiah gave God his proper holy place, and he knew that he was unworthy of God. That is humbling. Isaiah knew well who he was talking to. He knew who it was that he was talking to. He knew who it was that he was serving. And he saw his own inadequacies in light of God's holiness. Not the shortcomings of society. But of himself. Now he did see the people's shortcomings. You know, he had a minister among them. But it was himself. Our need is to see God's holiness. And to see ourselves in light of of his holiness that's what our need is don't make excuses for yourselves even legitimate ones you know well I, i'm busy yeah well we're, we're all busy but we most of us make ourselves busy you know but you know even legitimate ones uh, you know the, i was reading an article uh, this morning before i came to church about uh, philip rivers the new quarterback for uh indianapolis Colts. he had nine kids is that right nine kids he's got yeah nine kids and he was just talking, you know, in this article, and it, and it was an article, I, I think, in uh, uh, USA Today. So it, was, it wasn't like it was a Christian article or anything. But he talked about the uniqueness of each one of his kids, and he went through, and they they gave a little blurb 
uh, about what he said about each of his nine children and their uniqueness and stuff. And he said, you know, he said, when football season comes, he says, I'm pretty focused on football. He says, but when I'm home, I'm dad and I'm there. He said, even during the football season, he said, we work to have, we have supper at, at least, supper together at least on Wednesdays, even when, even during football season. He says, and I give my attention to those kids. He says, when football season's over, I'm the one who reads. I'm the one who, you know, I'm the one who's out in the yard playing with them. I get to act silly. You know, and he's just talking about what a great wife he had. And, and I understand that, you know, one who makes us look better, uh, you know. But we choose. And I was thinking to myself, man, dude, you have to be busy with nine kids. That's a full-time job. You know, and stuff. And, and you know, sometimes we are busy. But one of the things he talked about in there, too, they, they said they had nine kids because they decided they were going to leave it up to God. And what they said was, we have nine kids so far. And I thought, ooh, yes, sir. Uh, you know, the, uh, 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 the oldest one is 18, and in college, the youngest is a year and a half. You know, they're spread but they said, you know, they're leaving up to God. And it could be more. And I thought, well, anyway, uh, you know, the, this whole thing, don't make excuses for yourself. You know, don't make excuses. Get a fuller, God, a fuller view of God's holiness. And when we get that view of God's holiness, we'll be ready for the step that we see in verses 6 and 7 here when he, the, the, the angel takes the coal and touches his lips, that purifying, that cleansing, you know, a, a, a cleansed, purified vessel. It's ready. A cleanse, now, now, here's what you need to realize. A cleansed and purified vessel is ready for use, but it can still be misused. They're reading about Israel at the high point. You know, at the high point of, of, their, of their, you know, of their reign, if you will, under, under Solomon and man, the expansion of the kingdom and the wisdom that this guy had and all of the, but yet, what is it that they're coming in? They're coming in as a nation that was blown apart. A nation that was just a few of them, just a handful of them now going to return to try somehow to rebuild the temple and the walls. How in the world were they ever going to do this? You know, and, and, and they, were, they were returning that way because a, a, a cleansed and purified vessel can still be misused. When we used to go up to the boundary waters, we, would, um, we, we had um, containers for our water and stuff, and we would cleanse before we left. You know, we would make sure they were clean. We would make sure they were purified. And when we got up there, you know, for a while we had a pump that filtered this stuff, but there was so much stuff in the water. It's like it lasted, the pump lasted one day, so then I carried it around for the rest of the day. Well, then we got some other chemicals to purify, you know, to, to purify the water and stuff. And that, it, 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 even though you're surrounded by contaminants, even though you're surrounded by contamination, you, as God's vessel, can still be pure and clean. Even though we're surrounded, you know, by those things which might be against God. In verse 8 there, you know, we see a sign, a result of that humility and cleansing. He says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. Now notice here. Isaiah didn't say, To where? You're going to send, who should I send? Send where? And who is it to do what? I need a few more details before I can respond, Lord. You see, I need a few more details in this. He was ready to serve. He was ready to go. He was ready to do whatever God wanted. He was ready to go wherever God would lead him. He didn't need the details to help convince him because he knew whom he was serving. 
because he had a high and lofty vision of God. And because he had that vision of God, he didn't need the details because he knew that he could trust in God. He had already given God the proper place in his life. And because God had that proper place in his life, it was easier for him to go. The message Isaiah was given to share with the people in verse 9 and 10, it's, it wasn't going to encourage people to follow Isaiah. You know, those, the message there, in verse, what a message they have to preach. You know, it's like, you, know you guys are going to listen, but you're not going to hear. You know, you're going to see, but you're not going to get it. You know, what a message to have, not exactly the bearer of good news. Easy to, easy to give in to fear, easy to cop an attitude. And both are reactions going on in God's people right now. Right now in our, in our country. Both of those reactions, people giving in to fear, people copping an attitude. The pandemic's only one example. That's only one example of it. Of both people giving in to fear and people copping an attitude. That's just one example. We didn't need this pandemic to have this problem. But don't lose pace with what's going on here in Isaiah. Isaiah gets humility the proper way, not by putting himself down, but by by seeing God's holiness. And he's willing to go wherever God sends him. He's willing to do whatever God wants him to do. He's willing to do anything for God. Apparently, he's willing to suffer abuse of the people because not the best message, uh, you know, not that encouraging message. But he doesn't need an encouraging message because he's already given God that proper place in his own life. And that's what made all the difference. Verses 11 and 12 and 13, it shows how complete Isaiah's humility is. You know, Isaiah's reaction rather than, you know, to a rather uncomfortable assignment. You know, this wasn't a great assignment. He doesn't complain. He doesn't run. He doesn't pout. Notice what he says. For how long, Lord? How long is it you want me to do this? He understood, you know, what he was to do. Now the question was, how long? No complaints. Look at the answer. Look at the answer. Verse 11, he says, Then I said, Until when, Lord? You know, how long? It says, Then he replied, Until the cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. The Lord drives the people far away, leaving a great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak tree that leaves a stump when filled, and the holy seed is that stump. Let me, con- let me condense this answer for you and paraphrase it for you so you can better understand it. Isaiah says, you know, how long, O Lord? And God answers, a long time, Isaiah. It's going to be a long time. See, humility calls forth a long time commitment. Not a short burst of obedience, a short burst of obedience is easy. You know, it's easy. A short burst is easy. You know, I, I, I remember going to see the track meets, you know, when Peter was in high school and he ran track. And I, I, I don't think I'll ever forget this one. We were at, we were at Bishop Dwinger and we're sitting in the stands and they were doing, uh, I don't know if it was, uh, you know, if it was a 400, 800, whatever it was, seven, seven? 800. They're doing the 800. That's four laps around? Two laps. Oh, yeah. Okay. Two laps around the track. Okay. So the race starts. Bam. This guy takes off. And he's like way ahead of everybody else. And I'm thinking, I am either witnessing an Olympic champion or somebody who's never run this race before. 
It was the latter. <laughs> this guy took off, and he was so far ahead of everybody. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. He had them by half a lap on that track. You know, by the time, by the time they were down at one end, he was getting to the other end of the track. And by the time he got to the starting line again, they were right on his tail and passed him up like, you know, like he was standing still. You know, short bursts are easy. The long haul takes work, takes wisdom, takes takes commitment, takes having God in his right place. I love the title of a book by Eugene Peterson. It says it well, a long obedience in the same direction. What a great title. I really need to read the book one of these days. Uh, Is this a long obedience in the same direction? That's not easy. That's why God tells us to count the cost. That's why he tells us to press on to that high mark, to that calling. That's why he tells us to stretch for the goal, you know, for all it's worth. That's why he says run with endurance. Because it's a long haul. You cannot have a long obedience in the same direction if you do not humble yourself before God. If you're not properly humbled, you will be stopped. If you don't see God in that high, exalted, lofty place, you will be stopped because people will put pressure on you. Or people will hurt you. Or the task will overwhelm you. Or you'll be dragged aside by other desires, you know, or you'll begin to feel you deserve better. But you see, the humble person is so fixed on God that he cannot be stopped. Now notice, I didn't say that he cannot be hurt. I didn't say so that he cannot be wearied. I said that he cannot be stopped. I didn't say that he couldn't be tempted, but that he cannot be stopped. You'll still have hurts. You'll still have be tempted by other desires, but they cannot be stopped from serving God and from going and doing as he directs. Look at Isaiah's focus in the first part of the chapter. I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. His robe filled the temple. Seraphim standing above him. Each one had six wings. Two he covered his face. Two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. And the foundations of the doorways shook. When we recognize God's holiness, when we recognize his true position, and when we recognize that he has called us to share with him in that holiness, and that he has called us to labor with him in that holiness, then we will be humbled. And the call in Second Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, that becomes more real. Humbling yourself, not by putting yourself down and listing all the reasons you're an unworthy person. Humbling yourself isn't even looking at yourself first. Humbling yourself is seeing yourself more clearly as a result of seeing God more clearly. A humble Christian will tell others about Jesus more than they tell them about themselves. A humble Christian will tell others about Jesus more than they tell them about themselves.
more than they talk about, you know, oh, how weary or how hard it is. They will tell them about Jesus. A humble Christian will look at others and will lift them up, not put them down. James chapter 4 says, humble yourselves before the Lord. We're called to humble ourselves before God. And that means putting God in his rightful place, realizing his holiness, ready to go, ready to serve in any circumstances, putting God's will first before ours. You ever pray that prayer, your kingdom come, and then what? Your will be done. Your will be done. Humility chooses God's will over my way. Humility chooses to stand with God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. It's addressed to God's people. It's calling God's people to live like God's people. To see ourselves in the light of God's holiness living that long-term commitment to God, so fixed on God that we cannot be stopped, and seeing God more clearly, desiring his way, desiring his will over my way. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. You have a choice of how you will respond to God. Choose humble. Choose to stand with God. Father, thank you for your truth and thank you for those who have chosen, who made that choice to stand with you before we ever came along. I thank you for that history as we look back and we can see some of those who have stood for you. I think of Dr. Grable. I think of Frank Armstrong. I think of Bob Fansler. I think of George Niblack. All those men who stood in the front of this sanctuary, in the front of the sanctuary in the other building, and shared the truth and the reality of God's, of who you are. Not because of accolades or awards, but because they saw you high and lifted up. Father, I thank you for the legacy we've been handed as a church. I thank you for a legacy we've been handed as people. Many of us here, many of my brothers and sisters here can think about their parents, their grandparents who lived for you, who walked with you, who knew you, who prayed for them. And Father, I think of those who will come after us, our children our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren. Father, that they might look at us and see you. That they might see and know your holiness because we have made it clear. Because we have made very clear who you are. High and lifted up. Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with your glory. 
Help us to be part of that shining forth of your glory each and every day so others may know that Christ is Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.